We are presenting my grandfather to this Choshev Tzibur. Um, I hope, I really doubt him that I don't misrepresent him in any way, either by not saying enough or by saying too much. Whether call him It's really a very difficult task to speak about someone that was truly larger than life. I'll, I'll do my best. Okay, first of all, in terms of who he was, you know, this film is called Unlikely Heroes, but anybody who knew my grandfather said he was probably the most likely hero because that's just who he was. My father once, my father once told me something. My father is not his son. My father is his son-in-law. My mother is his daughter. So once I lived in Rochester, New York, and a very, very famous rabbi, Darshan, came to speak. Very, very famous. I'm not going to say his name. Very famous Darshan. And he... He wanted to first speak about the Rav of Arkehila, who was a tremendous, tremendous tzaddik. Tremendous, an amazing balchesed, someone. There's a tremendous amount of chesed when people didn't know about, and he was just such a good person. And my father described all the things that this Rav does. And then this Darshan got up to speak, and he spoke. He said, okay, Dr. Rav told me this, this Rav is an ish chesed. My father was not happy. <laughs> said, I never told him he's an ish chesed. I said, what do you mean? He is an ish chesed. I don't know. He says, no. He's a person who does a tremendous amount of chesed. Right? And his, his char is, is tremendous. I never, the only ish chesed he said I ever met was your grandfather. That was only, an ish chesed is somebody who cannot live without doing chesed. It's just natural. He can't live for himself and he wasn't living for himself. And he says that's who your grandfather Pinchas Rosenbaum was. That's how he was able to do what he did in the war. It wasn't even an isoyan for him. So that, that's just who he was. And the fact is, you know, many people do chesed because they want to be able to write in their books, in their diaries, in their, in their uh, autobiography to tell their children what they did. But the fact is that he, he never told anybody anything of what he did, including his wife, my grandmother. All these stories, and hundreds and hundreds of more stories, we only found out years later. Some of them only 30, 40, 50 years, and some of them many years after he died. In fact, this one of the people speaking here, Shmuel Abu Gross, a very, very close friend of his from, from his hometown, said he was once with him at a wedding, and and somebody came up to him and hugged him and said, Pinchas is one of the people he saved. He said, remember, and he started reminiscing, and he said, my grandfather was just looking at him with a smile as if he was a stranger, hearing it for the first time. He said, it was, it was so weird. Like He says, well, why, why don't you acknowledge it? He said, I did what I had to do. And the fact is, I think it's a very, very... The reason he didn't talk about it is, first of all, I'm sure he felt this is what he had to do, and you know, it's not a reason to boast, but there was more than that. I think it's something which was mentioned at the beginning over here, that last Pesach Seder he had with his family, which was a very, 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 it was traumatic. It was very hard for him. I'll describe why, but you know, it was hard. He, he knew what was happening. Many Jews recognized, you see, they were talking about the early 1940s, when Jews around Europe were being slaughtered, they were being killed. People knew about Auschwitz already. But many people in Hungary did not, either they didn't want to accept it or they really didn't, didn't believe it. You know, I'll tell you the truth, in my grandmother's family, his wife in Budapest, somebody escaped the camps, not at the camp, the ghetto actually, actually a sister of a very famous person, and ran to their house and was telling them about the atrocities happening and in their, in their family she was, she was marked as, as crazy. She was crazy. They didn't believe it. It wasn't accepted. But my grandfather knew it was happening. And he knew that his family wasn't accepting it. And he was trying to convince them to let, let him come with me to Budapest. We'll save you. And his father is the robber of the killer. says, I can't leave my kehillah. Makes a lot of sense. But he says, what about the, the brothers and sisters? He had five brothers and sisters. And, and he couldn't convince them. And that was very painful for him. In fact, every single year at the Seder night, 
this I don't remember, but this my, my mother told me. He always told the family he's going to tell them what happened that last Seder. He said, something happened. I want you to know what happened that last Seder. And he started talking, and he'd always break down. And he said, next year. And every year this repeated itself, so we don't actually know what happened that last Seder, but it was something major. And it was painful, and I think he carried this pain with him, that he wasn't able to save his family, so it's certainly not something he wanted to boast about. And then certainly, obviously, it wasn't in his hands, but uh, that was difficult for him. Al-Kapano, I just want to talk a little bit, you know, how you have this yeshiva bachar, involved in B'nai Akiva. Also very strange. <laughs> how does it happen? I have to understand the landscape in, in Hungary. His father, he grew up in a town called Kishvarda. Kishvarda, in, otherwise known as Kleinvedain, it's a city in, in northeast city. It's a town, a hamlet in northeast Hungary. It was a town of about 5,000 Jews. It's considered the Irba Eimbistro in Hungary. His grandfather was already the Rav there. It's called Ramayshe Chaim. Amachunem Mazes Chaim Skal Lich Rosenbaum. That was the name. And he was in Hungary considered one of the Gedeleador. He was the grandson of the famous Ramayshe Arya Leib Lich Rosenbaum. Talmud Mubak al Chasam Sofer, Dain of Pressburg, Baal Machabra Sefer, Masad Yerushalayim and Yerushalmi. Mishabura quotes him. Very, very, very. It was, it was a rabbinic family all the way from the Maral, basically, through the Chavas Yoyer, through the Shmelk of Salish. So they, they, it was in the genes. His grandfather was the Rav of Kishvarda. He was the first Rav of Kishvarda, and he basically, my grandfather grew up in his house with his grandfather, and then his father became the Rav as well. Now, actually, his grandfather, the Lechem, it was called the Lechem Rav. He wrote a sefer, Lechem Rav Alatfila, had a yeshiva, and one of his most famous Talmidim was the Kloisenberg Rebbe. Zalmul Eber, Kusiel, Yehuda, Halberstam, the previous Kloisenberg Rebbe, was a Talmud of his. And he spoke very, he loved, he loved him, spoke very highly of him. And as a result, actually, my grandfather afterwards was, was extremely close to the Kloisenberg Rebbe. As his son told me, the, the current Rebbe told me, that the relationship between my grandfather and the Rebbe was not one of Chosid, to Rebbe, he wasn't a chassid of the Rebbe, but it was one of father and son. And they would spend literally hours together talking and reminiscing, and they did a lot of uh, cloud work together. Anyway, back to... So he grew up in this home, this rabbinic home, and he was in fact the bachor of six kids. And it was sort of expected for him to continue in this, in this derech. And uh, yeah, he was the, this, the rabbi's son, and he, he, did, he took advantage of it as well. You know, he used to come late to school every single day because he was the rabbi's son, even though everyone knew it had nothing to do with that. But that was his. But uh, he was he was also a big balkishran, and he used to love learning, and he used to love doing other things as well. And his father sent him to Ungvar at the age of fourteen. Ungvar was yeshiva from Mitzvayim, led by at the time by Rav Yosef Elimelech Kahana. He was one of the gedolim in Hungary, and he learned there for till till the age of nineteen. He in fact was chavrusa for a few years, with uh, Moshe Weiss, the father of Rav Weiss. They learned for smicha together in less than one year. <laughs> it was a, he got smicha from Rav Kahana and from the Munkach Beisman. And he went and he was learning there. So the schedule there used to be, started, the Seder used to start five in the morning. Five in the morning till seven. He had to be in the base medrash, basically. And it was very, very rigorous. So he was in Ungvar, and, and that's where he became a Zionist. How did he become a Zionist in Ungvar? See, the, the Rav Kahana was not a Zionist at all. You see, in Hungary, you have to understand, Hungarian people generally are very extreme. Passionate, extreme people. 
it's every extreme you have, basically, today in Eretz are from the Hungarians. You have, you have the Satmer, the Naturkarts, so there's Hungarians, right? And then you have Tommy Lapid, uh, they're also Hungarians on the other side, right? It's, it's, no. <laughs> no, it's true, right? Hungarians, because, you know, they're very passionate, they're passionate. So, Rav Kahana was, was of the passionate anti-Zionists, of the Yeshiva, and he, my grandfather loved them dearly, and his father was also in that camp. You have to understand in those days what was happening. Zionism was a wonderful thing, but people were leaving Yiddishkeit as a result of it. People, and especially in Hungary, where they were fighting on the Kaitzeshel Yud against any reform, young people were leaving, and, and it was very dangerous. Now, my grandfather, when he was in yeshiva, saw things a little differently. He said, yeah, in a chenami. But he said that to, to stay the way we are, we're just going to die. So he says, why not bring Frumkeit to, 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 to the Zionist movement? Adarabba. Let's bring the Yiddishkeit that we have here to the Bnei Akiva, and let's, let's merge the two together. And that's what he was trying to do. On the one hand, not to compromise even the Kaitz Shalyud, the smallest thing, but on the other hand, to actually work to try to save Jews and bring them to Eretz Yisrael. In fact, <laughs> he did something crazy. At one point, he was, it was discovered, and, and Rav Kahana told him, you know, it's either me or, or, <laughs> or them. So <laughs> he left. But then he went to his father's yeshiva. And Kalandistan, he bought about 15 of the heads of Bnei Akiva, dressed up as yeshiva bochum, to learn in yeshiva. He wanted them to have a yeshiva experience. He tried it in Ungvar with one person, the head of the Bnei Akiva, called Asael. That didn't work. But then, then he... Uh, and they were learning there for more than a year. Learning to... He wanted them to get a feel of a real, genuine yeshiva. But at the same time, you know, so, so he did this. Apparently his father didn't know. I don't believe it for a second. But he, uh, he turned the blind eye. And they were there. And in the meantime, they're working on Hatzal. And that's where he tried to convince his family to join him in in Budapest, and his family didn't agree, and that was very difficult for him. Al Kapanim then, as you heard here in the film, he was, the Germans came closer, they came into Hungary, and he was brought to a labor slave camp, which you see they were digging over there. They actually, I don't think that's an actual picture of this, this particular camp, but he said the first thing they were told to do is to dig. He said, what are we digging for? He says, you're building a ski slope. So in the middle of Hungary during the war, a ski slope. It was pure slave labor. The shame, you know, just slave labor, nothing else. And just to show you how he was so connected to his father's home, and even though he was so involved in the Bnei Akiva, it didn't take away anything, one iota, of his connection to Yiddishkeit. You'll see this throughout his life. But the first Shabbos, the first Shabbos when they're in this labor camp, the story goes, and this, one of the people here, Shmuel Abu Gross, told, told, I heard the story from him. He said, they arrived, so they're, they're working. And they weren't allowed to work on Sunday. Sunday was Kaddish, right? Because they had to have Kaddish for the rest of the six days, and Sunday was a holy day. But Shabbos, they had to work. And the first Shabbos, Pinchas wasn't coming. So the commander of their unit says, where's Pinchas? <laughs> they found him sitting. He was sitting and learning. They said, well, what are you doing? Why are you not working? He says, today's the Sabbath. I don't work. So everyone's like burying their heads in the ground. They said, Pinchas, it's, it's Pikach Nefesh. You don't start these things. He says, no, it's not. It's pikuach nefesh, yeah, but they're doing a dafka that we should we shouldn't keep the halachas for this. There's no din of yavav uh, and he says no. I'm, it's Shabbos. I'm not going to work. And the commander says you don't have a choice. You know, he said you're officially a soldier of the Hungarian army. You're working. Pick up your shovel. And he said no. So he took the back of his gun and he started beating him. And he was beating him, beating him. And apparently all the non-Jewish prisoners took advantage and they started beating up the Jews. And then there was a whole tumult, tremendous amount of noise. And the commander of the camp heard this noise, and he comes out and says, what's going on? And he said, treason. There's a traitor here. He doesn't want to work on Shabbos. He says, where's a traitor? So they showed him. He stood up. He's bleeding. And he says, is it true you're not going to work? He said, I'm not going to work. So he looks at him in the eyes. He says, you're serious? He says, yeah. 
says, and, and if, can you guarantee me that you'll finish your quota in five days and not six days? Is this guarantee? He says, okay, so don't work. So from then on, <laughs> all the religious Jews did not have to work one Shabbos in this camp because, and actually the non-religious Jews helped them finish their quota <laughs> that they wouldn't have to work on Shabbos. So that, that was one thing. And then eventually, okay, so what, 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 he escaped from the camp. That's an amazing story. I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into that. Very much related to this letter he received from Valze, from, from this uh, resort called Auschwitz. Um, so straight afterwards, he, he basically escaped after quite a nice story. But um, he, he understood that he had to get out and start start saving people. So he went, he went, and he did what it says over there. He dressed up like a Nazi, got involved with the Hatzola and, and the glass house. And, you know, all these stories, you know, the, there's hundreds of stories you could say about this, but I, I really want to talk a little bit how about his connection to his father's home. After everything he did over there, after the war is over, he lost his whole entire family. There's nothing left. Gornished. So he continued doing, working, trying to save Jews, bring Jews to Eretz Yisrael. He was still involved in the Bnei Akiva. And about six months after the war, he was appointed <laughs> to be Rav of Kishvarda. They wrote to him, they said they'd like him to come back to be Rav of Kishvarda. Now there's 400 people left in the sand out of 5,000. And he accepted the job. And he went back to Kishvarda. And with the whole contingency, contingency of the Bnei Akiva, they came with him, his friends. And he was not married. He's 22 years old. He's 22 years old. And you come a rav. They accept him as the rav. And, and there's an amazing story. He actually went back once before, and he gave a speech. The, the rav Klein, Rav Nasha Klein, was there. The, the, the Shinsky was there, and they all came to cover. And he he gave a speech, and they all sat on the floor. He said, it, it, if, we, "If we sit on the floor, Tishabov, today we'll sit on the floor." And he said, "Bikashtiyev And everyone just burst out crying. That was his first speech. But that was his. But then the first official speech as Rav, once he was hired, he got up. And just to give you a bit of a feeling of how he felt, how he saw himself vis-a-vis religion, and even though he was, he was sort of involved in change, tremendously involved in change, the Bnei Akiva, but had nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. And he said like this, I won't tell you the whole drasha, it's written down, it's a beautiful drasha. It's one of the Agadatas, Rabbi Barachan and Vav Basra. But he started off with a vort from his father. My great-grandfather, Shmuel Shmelka, who... Uh, he said like this, Moshe Rabbeinu tells Yeshua, very Moshe El Yeshua, the war with Amalek, right? V'charlonu anoshim, v'tzei, hilochem ba'amalek, machor anochi nitzav ha'rosh, agiva ma'atolek emiyadi. So he says, go, go find Amalek, he says, tomorrow I'm going to stand on the machor anochi nitzav ha'rosh, agiva. He says, what's the machor? Why tomorrow? Not today. <laughs> what's machor? So he said out there, drush like this, he says, Amalek, which represents the Yitzhahara, right? Amalek's the Yitzhahara. Yitzhahara comes to you and says, look, Stop keeping Shabbos. You gonna listen to him? No way. Stop being religious. Doesn't stand the chance. How does the Yitzhahara work? He's a Zokin as well. He's a Tamat Chacham. He knows how to work. Comes to you and says, make a tiny little innovation. You do this little thing. It's not going to change anything. It's going to make your life easier. And everyone's happy. You're not going to see the difference today. You'll see the difference tomorrow. A small innovation today could be devastation tomorrow. And he said, therefore, that's the idea here. Go fight the Amalek of tomorrow. Our war has to be with the Amalek of tomorrow. The small changes, you understand, he's saying this, his whole, all his friends from Bnei Akiva are like, what? That's not what we thought. <laughs> he thought he's going to bring an innovation to this. No, no, definitely not. And that, that was his whole life. My mother grew up that way. She wasn't allowed to go to Bnei Akiva. No way. <laughs> Aguda, he sent his sons to Panovich, the Kol Kolterah, while still being the head of Mizrahi Olami. But it's interesting because he was... 
he was the head of the Mizrahi. He held, helped build Medina Sisral. He was so involved in everything. But at the same time, he was, he was the guest of honor at a Satmar dinner in, in New York, Shamir Achoymas. He was like, he was very good with everyone. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's something quite amazing. And just, I'll just uh, finish with, with two things. Just one thing which is related to this. Two things, really. When he would walk into his, his study, this is something I do remember. And it's something which hit me straight away. You know, besides, you know, the smell of the old swarm, he had hundreds and hundreds of the swarm. He saved all the swarm. He managed to go after the war and find all the swarm from his father, which includes hundreds of kisveyad from his grandfathers, including letters from the Chassam Seifer to his great-great-grandfather. I've seen, actually, these kisveyad. And you walk into there, and, and it's, it's like you're transported to a different world. And just as you walk in, there's these huge portraits, paintings of his parents. And it's like so clear to me that it was like, wherever he went, it was his father staring at him, his mother staring at him, and they never ever left him. And that, that's how he lived his life and everything that he did. You see in the Savo, he wrote her family, I'm not going to read it to you, the whole thing, but some things are private, but he's got, he basically, it's all about just keeping the ways of our father, keeping the ways of our fathers, Torah Lishma, learning Torah without any changes, sending your kids to yeshivas, which are not the kilayim type of yeshivas, he writes, and it, it, it was so important to him. And it's a story of one of his, now he kept Shabbos at his table. You know, he's, the Shabbos, anybody, everybody who was zeichet to spend Shabbos with him, which was many, many people, you know, said that when you sat at his Shabbos table, you were transported back to Hungary. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't in Geneva, Switzerland, where he lived. He was especially reliving he was hundreds of years before. He was singing the Zmiras to the family with every single knech and every kretch. Now, the family, had, we had our own Zmiras. They had Hungarian Gedolim were poets. They, they wrote Zmiras. So he would sing all the Zmiras from his family. The story is he has a cousin, and she, she might be known to some of you. Um, you heard of Mady Newman? Mady Newman. She was, she was giving official tours of Auschwitz for Eishat Torah for many years. She was, the, she, she, she was a survivor of Auschwitz, and she lost her whole family. And she was one one of the few survivors from his family. He had 64 people who were killed from his family. And she was one of the few survivors. And after, she says the story herself. That's why I'm allowed to say it. She, so after the war, she was, she was a lost soul. She was a teenager, lost her family. She was lost physically, lost emotionally, lost religiously. She went to Paris, and she, she wasn't religious at all. And my grandfather found out about her. He was a newly married, newly married, living in Geneva, Switzerland. And he straight away took a plane... <laughs> And he found that he invited her to come to Geneva. Come live with us a bit. She came to Geneva. And my grandmother told me this story. And the first Shabbos, she was there. He started singing all the Zemiris that her father used to sing with his tunes. I think they might have been the same Zemiris. And he was singing it. To this, and she ran out of the room. And she burst out crying. And she said, everything came out. And she, Baruch Hashem, today, and she's got a family. She's a grandmother, great-grandmother of Tamil Chachamim, Yerush And she said, that was the moment that changed her life. Suddenly brought back her whole her whole past and everything, just in, that, in those mirrors which she sang on Friday night. His Avas this I heard from my father-in-law. No relation. But he remembers him. He says he remembers, he used to go skiing as a kid in a ski, a Jewish hotel called Arosa. There was a Jewish, there was a resort called Arosa, and there's a Jewish hotel which is more than 120 years old. And my father-in-law used to go as a kid. And my mother used to go, my grandfather, he used to send the family skiing. He didn't know how to ski. He used to come on Friday afternoon, 20 minutes before Shabbos, right? And then he'd leave on Matzah Shabbos. But he used to come for Shabbos to visit. And what we, he'd arrive in the hotel on Shabbos. He says in the first place he'd go, he wouldn't go to his family. <laughs> he'd go straight to the shul where the Bachram from Yeshiva, Yeshiva Bachram, Ben Azmanim, were learning. 
and he tests all the bachrim. See what they're learning. What are you learning? What are you? Like people say, they were scared. Pinchas Rosenbaum's coming. I'm getting out because he's going to test me. That was the, that was known. Anyway, so <laughs> anyway, this is. Uh, I'll just say, just to finish off with what what I what I learn, what I think we can take from him, what I certainly take from him as a lesson. The bit about being an ish chesed, I can't take from him because you're either born that way or not. I mean, you can learn to do chesed, but to be an ish chesed, you either have it or you don't. And he certainly had it, and some of us don't. But uh, there's something else, something else which to me is a tremendous, tremendous lesson. I think I think it's you can learn a lot. You know, we say the makom she'ein anoshim ish. It's oftenly misquoted. Makom she'ein ish ish. Makom she'ein anoshim. As Chazal are telling us, even though sometimes a task is a task which is not possible for one person to do, it's a task for Anoshim, for many, many people. So very often we say, forget it. Well, I'm not even going to start. You do what you have to do. You do what you do, and Kodesh Baruch will take care of the rest. You'll be an Ish. That's one thing. But uh, with him, there wasn't a Shtadla, so it was just to do it. He did it because that was natural. But I also learned something else, which is, which is really the same idea. You know, we say that. Shmart, we learn like this. Shmart and Samatzes, Chazal say, Mitzvah boliyotcha, al tachmitzen. Mitzvah comes to your hand. What's al tachmitzena? Yeah, right. You generally explained it to me. In, uh, don't miss the opportunity. Don't let it. Don't miss opportunity. Do a mitzvah that comes to your hand. But you're right. The lashon is don't make it chametz. What does it mean? Don't make it chametz. So, so I, I understand it like this: that the mitzvah comes to your hand. Right, similar to matzah. Matzah is pure. What's matzah? It's just water and flour, nothing else. What's chametz? What happens? You leave it for 18 minutes, there's a little bit of air. It's bloated, bloated with air, right? Air is the ego. It's a horror, whatever else. It's got something else, right? It's not pure anymore. It says, a mitzvah boliyotcha. Sometimes you have the opportunity to do something in its purest form. It's a mitzvah right now. A person can sit back and make cheshvaynas. So you know what? I want to do it in a better way. I'll do it tomorrow, but I'm going to do this and that. When you're doing it tomorrow, it's not pure anymore. It's your mitzvah already with your own ego, with everything else inside it. Sometimes making cheshvaynas just takes away. In the glass house, as I heard, many people were sitting and making cheshvaynas. We're going to do this and that. In the meantime, he said, I'm just going to save Jews. I'm going out. You know, you make your cheshvaynas. So mitzvah boliyotcha, al-tach Just do it. You have an opportunity. Rabbi Shalom gave it to you right now. You do it. You can make the cheshvaynas later. That's uh, that's a little bit I want to say about uh, my grandfather. Going through the process of trying to uncover more information about your, your grandfather's uh, story, how did you go about doing that without like, Okay, uh, first of all, like, I grew up with it. Yeah, this is hearing stories the whole time and, and I sort of made it a, a priority about 10 years ago, 15 years ago of just talking to anyone who knew him you know, friends who were still alive and there's almost no one left this Shmuel Abagros is one of the last ones actually, I was zocha to go together with him to uh, Kishvarda it was his first time going back and there were, there were about 4 or 5 survivors we went back together and I hopped around, I joined with them together with my uncle, it was amazing actually there was another survivor by the name of uh, Grun- Grunfeld lived in Antwerp, also passed away about three years ago. And we went over there. It was incredible. First of all, I asked him afterwards, are you happy you went? He said, no. <laughs> Never. No, it was too, too much. Too much. But we went, we went to the shul. The shul was still standing. The shul is now a museum. And then there was the base manager, my great-grandfather. And this Shmuel Abagros made a seum. Made a seum on the Zikim. 
in the base Medrash, and nobody had been learning there for the last 60 years. And then this Grunfeld from Antwerp, he wanted to daven mincha, he had a yard site. He's a, he's a munkach, a chosir. And he clapped, he said, here the minig is Ashkenaz. <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't daven there in 60 years, and everyone was just... Anyway, so then he took me, I was thinking, I'm bringing me back. he took me behind... <laughs> what? <laughs> 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 and he took me behind, behind the shoulder and said, I want to show you something, Grunfeld. And this Grunfeld had been back the year before. It was his first time. This was his second time coming back. I want to show you something. And behind the shul, there were, he said, this is where the cheder used to be. And it was attached to the shul here. And we kids were often bored during cheder. So we used to pick up stones from the floor and write our names on the wall. And if you could see, the names are still there. The they had the shul, of, there's one shul. There was one main shul in Kleinvedain. The shul in Kishvad, that town. And the cheder was attached. So on the wall, one of the back walls of the shul, outside walls, you can see children's handwriting of their, of, and then I saw... You, you said you went to a show in Antwerp? No, no this is Kishvar. This is, this is Hungary. And together with a survivor who lived in Antwerp. Now, he's from Antwerp. So, so he basically showed me, and it was amazing, because like, I saw the name of my grandfather's brother. We always spoke about Ruven, Ruven, Ruven. And like a children's handwriting, you know. It's very stirring. Anyway, that's... that's uh, so yeah, so I definitely spoke to people, and a book has been written about it also. So I read that, and... And just talking to the family. My mother has a lot of stories. Uh, when was the last time you've been to Hungary? It was that time. It was uh, 14 years ago. 14? Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. good to have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping to hear a little bit more about your grandfather's story post war. It seemed like the but his post-war story is, is as great as his war story. It's a totally different story. But he, <laughs> right? But there's they're writing two books. I'm sorry, there's one war and one post-war. But right after the war, immediately. They are, they are actually writing two books. Well, the, the, they wrote one book, and uh, they decided to split it into two. And now they they redid one, and the other half because the second half is more complicated. Second half is more complicated, but uh, it's, it's definitely something which should be written because it's an amazing story. But he eventually became a, uh, a major a major banker. He owned, owned a bank in Switzerland and then ended up losing the bank. <laughs> it was a very long, uh, very big story. It's a long story. It's not, uh, but he was active his whole life in Eretz Yisrael and in helping others. That was, uh, that was his whole being. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you, Sherry. Um, I think you, you mentioned he was the head of Mizrahi after the war. The, the Akiva. That was one branch of, of Mizrahi, yeah. Right. Um, was there any, I guess, temptation or part of him which wanted to move to Eretz Israel? So much. So much of him. Every single letter he writes is, I hope to be in Eretz Israel. He tried so much to go to Eretz Israel. My grandmother didn't want to move there to Israel. That's the truth. But, but no, it was complicated. First, he was in Hungary. They couldn't just move. And he was, he was working on getting people to Israel, sending them to Israel, sending hundreds of people the whole time. And then eventually he had to make a parnas. He moved to Switzerland. And my grandmother was, was nervous. It was a brand new state. And she was nervous. But all his kids were in Eretz Israel. It was his dream. But he never made it. But he had a lot in Israel, a lot of stakes in Israel. <laughs> what? At the time, sure, at the time, he had a place in Israel. He owned, he owned a lot of Israel. I'm trying to say the Chevrali Israel, Atta, which was, was the major clothing company in Israel, belonged to him. The duty-free belonged to him. <laughs> it was, at the time, the way it worked, you know, it was, 
the, the Israeli government was, you know, when Ben-Gurion's son needed a job, Amos, he called him up, said, give him a good job. So he made him a manager of one of the branches of... of <laughs> and then he lost it all. Everything, yeah, that was... Where yeah. Switzerland Geneva. Geneva's there. I guess, I, I don't imagine he shared this, but how did he know what was going to happen when he came? Not be able to convince his, his family. Did he ever talk about yeah, that? That's what he wanted. It's so much what he wanted to say on Pesach, and he wasn't able to. Uh-huh. And it was very difficult, but this was an ongoing argument in Hungary, everywhere in Europe, but especially in Hungary, because Hungary, they, they, they were very lucky in the sense because they had warning. It was very, very late in coming. The only came Nazis only took over Hungary in 1944, like less than a year before the end of the Holocaust. And they managed to kill 550,000 Jews in those nine months, I think it was, right? So many Jews actually knew what's going on. But other Jews either didn't want to accept it or just, just didn't know. It was very, very hard. And, you know, when you talk about such atrocities, it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. So, so it's too much to, it's too much to grasp. And especially you hear that the Russians are coming, the war is almost finished. You know, it's, it's, it was very hard to grasp. But, uh, yeah, we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, one thing's for sure, there was a Hester upon him. That's for sure. Yeah. As a stu- um, uh, an, uh, an ardent student of people of, uh, who try to bridge the gap between the, the classic yeshiva Buddha world and the Mizrahi world, so uh, your grandfather of uh, necessity forced him to do at least a little bit of that, and I see at right. the end uh, he had to carve his own uh, chara, right. or lack of chara. Right. Did he write on this? Did he write his viewpoints about what the... Uh, how these uh, two seemingly uh, alternate worldviews somehow can be resolved in his mind? Or I'll tell you, he, he didn't write on it. He didn't write much. He didn't write much. He wrote Haskell. Family Yeah, Family Nisairus. Fa- no, Family Nisairus. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was just reading through yesterday his drusha that he gave as the guest of honor for Kol Shemir Chemis, which is not a Zionist organization. Yes. And in this drusha, he tells them how you can't deny that Nitzaytzis HaGeula, the Gula started, and everyone, you're blind if you think such a thing, like he's saying in front of them. So he, you know, he wasn't shamed. What? I'm saying, he wasn't like a man, he wasn't dressing up, pretending to be something else. They knew who he was. He spoke his view, and that was, 